following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Uh, so we're in a series at the moment. Uh, this is our third week now in the series called The Stories Jesus Told. And we are looking at the parables of Jesus in Matthew chapter 13. So if you want to open up your Bible, that's where we're going to be. We've been working our way through just this one chapter of the Bible. It's, it's jammed with parables. It's the heaviest concentration of parables, stories um, in, in all of the Gospels. We looked a couple of weeks ago at the parable of the different kinds of soils. Remember that, some of you? And we talked about the things that can inhibit our growth as Christians, things that can get in the way of our, of our spiritual growth and how we can deal with some of those obstacles. Last week, we talked about the parable of the weeds and the wheat and what it means for us, uh, those of us who do belong to Jesus, living in a world surrounded by people who don't share our faith and some of the challenges that brings and some of the ways in which we can face that uh, as Christians. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at two little parables, two mini-stories. Some of the parables Jesus told are really long. Uh, the parable of the soils is probably one of the longer ones. And then some of them are just tiny. Uh, these ones today, they're just one or two verses each, just little nuggets. But they're still stories. They still have a plot. Something still happens. They're still parables. So we're going to take two of these parables today and look at them because they're both on the same theme. It's a pairing of parables, both on the same subject, to, so it makes sense to... Uh, treat them together. So we're in Matthew 13, and we'll read from verse 31 <clears throat> just down to verse 33. So here we go. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. That's it. So just a couple of short stories. And again, what Jesus is doing, as he so often does in his parables, is he's drawing from everyday life. This is the stuff of everyday life for people living in the first century. These are very familiar sights and sounds and smells that would have just been the, the stuff of ordinary existence for his, for his audience. And so he tells these two little stories. Let's just unpack them a little bit. He tells firstly the story of this mustard seed, tiny little mustard seed. Um, mustard seeds are only about one or two millimeters in diameter. Some of you have probably got mustard seeds at home sitting in your pantry, tiny little seeds. They're not technically the smallest seed in the world, but they are the smallest seed that anyone had known at the time. So for, for the people Jesus is talking to, the mustard seed would have been the smallest seed they knew of. Today we know there are other seeds that are smaller, but this is the way that people understood the world as far as things had developed. And so the mustard seed was the smallest seed known to people. It's a tiny little seed. When you plant it in the ground, it becomes a mustard plant or a mustard tree. I've never seen a mustard plant. I don't know whether you have like a fully grown mustard plant. I think normally, from what I understand, these things grow usually to about a meter. You can have sort of a small mustard plant. It's got yellowy flowers on it, and it's kind of more of a plant than a tree. But then sometimes you do get really big mustard trees. 
And these things actually become a tree and they grow branches and they become quite huge. And that seems to be the kind of thing that Jesus is describing here. Not your standard little mustard plant, but one of these things that has really exploded and become huge. It's got branches. The birds are coming and nesting in the branches. So this is a big tree. And uh, these things, they're not a common, common sight in Palestine, but they have been spotted, these huge big mustard trees. Maybe there was one there when Jesus was talking uh, and he maybe referenced this mustard tree to talk about the kingdom of heaven. We don't know, but these things did exist. So it's an example from real life. So you've got the story of the mustard seed, and then you've got the story of the yeast getting mixed into the bread. And I brought along a bread maker here just so we could get a little experience of what this is like. Obviously, they didn't have bread makers in Jesus' day. But I'm hope, what I'm hoping happens here is that the aroma just drifts among you. And you won't even be able to concentrate on the sermon because you're going to be desperate for bread for lunch. If this works as it is supposed to, we will have this bread for communion later in the service, uh, all going according to plan. So we'll just see. So the yeast and the dough, this is a parable that takes us out of the world of farming and gardening, which the last several parables have involved, into the world of the home. And very likely Jesus would have seen his own mum, Mary, baking bread, common thing done in families as it is today. Uh, Jewish families would often break, bake bread, and probably Jesus had seen this all the time. He's drawing maybe on that childhood memory as he talks about this particular story. So it's a story of a woman who gets a little bit of yeast and mixes it into the flour, mixes it into the dough to bake bread. So your average lump of dough, your average loaf of bread, you need about 600 grams of flour. That's what we've got in here. And according to Google, because I don't know any of this stuff, you then need about three tablespoons, uh, teaspoons of yeast, only three teaspoons of yeast added to the mixture as well as water and a bunch of other stuff. And you put it all in here in a particular order as we've done today, and it, the yeast just works in among the dough. And so you'd sort of knead this thing in there, and the yeast just permeates the whole lump of dough. And, of course, then it's the yeast that makes the, the bread rise and hopefully results in this nice crispy loaf. So a tiny little bit of yeast makes this great loaf of bread. But if you actually look at the amount of flour that this woman's using here, Jesus gives us a measurement. He says... A woman took the yeast and mixed it into about 60 pounds of flour. So that's about 27 kgs. That's going to make about 50 to 60 loaves of bread. So she's not just making a loaf. She's making a whole bakery of bread. And, and, you, and you find this with the parables. There's this kind of extravagance to what's going on. You have this huge big mustard tree. You know, bigger than kind of a normal-sized mustard tree, that mustard plant that's going on. And then you have not just one loaf of bread. You have 50, 60 loaves of bread that this woman is baking. It's like she's just having a massive party for a whole lot of people, baking a whole lot of bread. And this is the kingdom of heaven. This is what Jesus is describing. So the stories themselves are reasonably simple. But, of course, the question is, what, what is Jesus getting at here? What do they mean? What is the theological significance of these stories? What Jesus is describing, and this is the subject of every parable in this chapter, he's talking about this thing called the kingdom of heaven. And this is probably a good time just to stop in this series and define what we mean by the kingdom of heaven. What is this thing? In particular, 
we need to distinguish the kingdom of heaven from the church. The kingdom of heaven is not the same thing as the church. Often we equate the two as if the kingdom is the church and the church is the kingdom, but they are distinct. The church is part of the kingdom, but it's not the whole thing. The kingdom of God is bigger than just the church. The kingdom of God is wherever God's transforming power is at work on earth. Wherever God's at work, by His Spirit, through Christ, through His people, in the world, wherever God's transforming power is at work to touch lives and bring healing and transformation and liberation, set people free, bring hope, bring healing, that's the kingdom of God. Wherever God is at work, wherever God's reign and God's rule is going forth in a whole lot of different ways, that's the kingdom of God. Now, of course, that involves the church. That includes the church because we are a community in which God is working. We're a community in which His transformative power is at work. But the kingdom of heaven is not restricted only to church communities. The kingdom of heaven, God's power, works out through the church out through his people, into the world, into the cracks and crevices of society to bring renewal, to bring healing. God is at work beyond just the church. He's at work through his people, but out into the world to renew his image in people and in communities, to bring reconciliation between people and God, reconciliation between people and themselves, reconciliation between people and one another, reconciliation between people and the world. God is at work by His power, bringing hope into situations that are hopeless, bringing peace into situations where there's hostility or where there's uncertainty and anxiety, bringing justice into situations where there's injustice. He's bringing His kingdom in a range of ways. He's doing it through His people. He's doing it through the church. But wherever God's Spirit is changing and touching human lives, wherever God is at work taking all the fragmented pieces of humanity and putting them back together again, that's the kingdom of heaven. That's the kingdom of heaven taking shape on earth. So we've got to have the big view of God's kingdom. If we limit it only to the church, we'll misunderstand what Jesus is talking about in this parable. The kingdom is vast. It's this huge reality that is taking shape on earth and was taking shape at the time of Jesus. So Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven in this way. And the impression you get from these stories is that the kingdom had very, very small beginnings. It began like a little mustard seed, began just like a little pinch of yeast. And of course, you think back and you think, well, when did the kingdom begin? What was the beginnings of the kingdom? Jesus himself was the embodiment of the kingdom of God. So the kingdom came into the world the night Jesus was born. That was the beginning of the kingdom. That was the night that the kingdom of God arrived on earth in the form of a little baby. And you think, well, how did that happen? A baby born in the most unclean, unhygienic, unsanitary conditions without any dignity, certainly without any fanfare or publicity or royalty or notoriety or anything like that. Just the most humble squalor of circumstances, the most undignified kind of delivery that you can imagine of a baby. And this is the kingdom of God coming into the world. That's how God's kingdom arrives. So it's like a little mustard seed. It's like a little pinch of yeast being added to the dough. The kingdom of God came quietly in the night into this feeding trough, a stable surrounded by animals. And then through Jesus' life, the kingdom of God was this guy Jesus, this itinerant rabbi, preacher, moving around Israel, walking around the countryside, not often the big cities, often just the small little places like Galilee where he's talking here. He's teaching. He's telling stories. He's telling parables. 
He's doing miracles. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. He's gathering together a little bunch of followers. That, that was the kingdom of heaven taking shape. And while Jesus' miracles, some of his miracles were extraordinary. I mean, he fed the 5,000. He walked on water. They were incredible things. But as you step back and you place Jesus on the whole landscape of the Roman Empire at the time, it was just the tiniest little blip. It was barely even noticed. I mean, we pay attention to it because we know Jesus is the Savior of the world. But in terms of the history, in terms of the politics, in terms of society, this was not a man with any social standing. This was not something that was recognized by the power brokers and the elites of the day. Jesus had no political influence. He had no social influence. In terms of the Roman Empire of the day, who were the real history makers, this thing was nothing. This was just something happening in an obscure little backwater, backwater town part of the, of the empire. Even Josephus, the major Jewish, Jewish historian of the first century, only has one tiny little mention of Jesus. It's not a big deal at all. Josephus is concerned with all kinds of other things in terms of world history at the time. The kingdom of heaven barely made a splash. But what Jesus is doing is he's looking forward from his own day. He recognizes the smallness of the kingdom of heaven and his birth and his life and his impending death. But he looks forward and he sees, the Holy Spirit enables him to see that this thing that began so small is going to grow and grow and grow until it is great and glorious. This thing that began so tiny is going to permeate. It's going to permeate the world like the yeast permeating the dough. It's going to permeate through human society and culture and community to have a profound influence and impact on the world. And so it was. Jesus was raised from the dead Easter Sunday morning, and suddenly things start to take off. Thousands of people start becoming followers of Jesus. This movement really starts to gain some life. And this was a persecuted movement within Jerusalem. But as this group of Christians came under fire, they came under persecution, they were scattered and they took the message of Jesus wherever they went, into the towns, into the cities of the Roman Empire. They took the message of Jesus, they took the good news of Jesus, and they took the values of the kingdom of heaven. They took the way of Jesus with them, the way of the kingdom, this whole new way of living and being in relationship with God and being in relationship with other people, this whole new social reality. They took it with them. And the values of this kingdom were often very, very different to the values of the world. The Christians saw that God had created all people with, with dignity. And they had values around this to be able to lift other people up, people who are hurting and broken and marginalized, and Christians became advocates for the poor, for the downtrodden, for the powerless. This was the kingdom of heaven. And this was not something being done by other people and other groups. It was a dramatic contrast to what was happening culturally at the time. But Jesus' followers took these values, the values of, of servant leadership, that leaders don't just dominate autocratically the people they're leading, but seek to lead by serving and loving took the values around reconciliation and forgiveness, that we need to encourage forgiveness rather than holding on to bitterness and resentment and revenge. This was, this was new, and Jesus' followers took this into the world. Values around the equality of all people, values around the dignity of human life, values around health care, education, and so on. This was the subject of Adam Clarkson's last message here. Do you remember that, those of you that were here? The dramatic impact that the teachings of Jesus have had through human history that the life and the teachings of Jesus have had a dramatic effect in areas like 
the rights of children, in areas like the rights of women, in areas like health care and education and so on and so forth. It has been Christians at the forefront of advocating for the dignity and the rights of others because of the life of Christ and the teachings of Jesus. This has had a permeating effect on human society. The kingdom of heaven has continued to move forward. It's continued to advance. It's continued to influence. You take just one example. Think of the Christian idea of the image of God, that all human beings are made in the image of God. We, we recognize that as a familiar idea. It's in the Bible in the very first chapter. It's as a theme through the Scriptures. Jesus embodied that because he was the image of God. He certainly treated all people as those made in the image of Christ and gave them the dignity that goes with that. And Christians, his followers then have taken that conviction that all human beings are created in God's image and therefore stand equally before God. And Christians have taken that and sought to live that out. And it's affected the way that we treat other people and the way we advocate for other people, especially those people who might be considered by others to be inferior, substandard, or even subhuman. It's had an impact. And so you come to a document like the United States Declaration of Independence, which says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men, should have put all people, but they said all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And the funny thing is, it's not self-evident that this is the case. It is to us in Western culture because, of course, this is just accepted now that all people are valued, all people are equal. But this is not self-evident, and it hasn't been self-evident through history. In many times, many cultures, including the Greco-Roman culture of Jesus' day, it was not self-evident at all. There were whole groups, whole classes, whole categories of people that were deemed to be less than, that were inferior, groups like slaves, groups like women, groups like children, the disabled, those with mental illness. These were groups that were pushed down on the social ladder, that were treated as outcasts and invalids and loaded with social shame and stigma. So we take these truths to be self-evident, but not everyone has. It's the result of a Judeo-Christian worldview influencing history and influencing culture. Ultimately, it is because Christians have advocated for these biblical values that we find ourselves now in modern societies that take these things for granted as if it's always been the case, when it hasn't. It is the influence of the gospel. It's the influence of Jesus. It's the influence of the kingdom of heaven. The irony is, of course, you have cultures like New Zealand, countries like New Zealand, where we take these things to be self-evident and we have social values around the equality of all people and we ardently defend equal rights for all people. We value the values of the kingdom, but we don't value the message of the kingdom. And that's the, that's the disconnect. That's really the tragedy that we accept the values of the kingdom and they have profoundly shaped our society. And yet we reject the one that taught those values in the first place. We reject the one who embodied the kingdom and inaugurated the kingdom on earth. It's a total disconnect. And very few people would even know that so many of these values we cherish came from a biblical tradition, came from the life and the teachings of Jesus. That, that's the tragedy. 
But even then, even in a secular culture like New Zealand that largely does reject Jesus himself, even though we accept many of the values of the kingdom of heaven without calling them the values of the kingdom of heaven, even in our culture, when you step back and you look at the big picture globally, you look at the long picture through history, it is certainly true that the Christian church, which is part of the kingdom of heaven, has grown astronomically from the time of Jesus, where it was a small little ragtag bunch of people, through to today, where it numbers the Christian church at the moment, numbers about 2.2 billion people. It's about a third of the population of the planet right now that identify themselves as Christian in one way or another. And we know they're not all active, personal Christians with a vibrant faith. Some people, it's just an affiliation. Nevertheless, one in three people on the planet identify as Christians. And you think over two millennia of the influence of the gospel in getting to that point where 2.2 billion people now claim to follow Jesus. This is the kingdom of heaven. This is the picture Jesus is painting. This thing that started small as a mustard seed, this thing that started like a little pinch of yeast has grown and grown and grown, expanded and expanded and expanded, permeated human society and culture and nations and groups and communities so that it is a pervasive force in the world today even though it's not recognized as such by many people. So if that's the kingdom of heaven, and if that's how the kingdom of heaven is taking shape in the world, then the question we've got to ask, and we ask it of all these parables, is where am I in this? Where am I in this story? That's the question we're trying to ask in this series. How does this, where does this intersect my life? How do I participate in this thing that Jesus is describing as the kingdom of heaven? I think what it's really tempting to do is to look at parables like this and we think about the kingdom of heaven advancing in the world. We think about God's work going on and moving forward and so on. And we're kind of drawn, I think, to the big stories. We're drawn to the dramatic stories. And so you think of someone like William Wilberforce who was incredibly instrumental in abolishing slavery in the British Empire. And you think of someone like Martin Luther King Jr., who was incredibly instrumental in the civil rights movement in America. And you think of someone like William Booth, who founded the Salvation Army movement from very humble beginnings, a man born into poverty, very humble beginnings, ministering among the poor in England. And yet that movement became a global mission. Salvation Army has reached and touched the lives of millions of people around the world. And we think about those stories, and we should be inspired by those stories. These are people who are kingdom people, moving the kingdom of heaven forward, bringing the message of Jesus, bringing the values and the way of Jesus into the world, the way they live their lives. But I think the problem is, at least this is how I feel, you can sort of look at the big examples and these great people, and in, in a reverse kind of way, it almost makes you feel worse about yourself. Do you know what I mean? Maybe it's just me, but you look at those big examples and you think, well, I'm not that. I'm not William Wilberforce. I'm not Martin Luther King Jr. I'm not William Booth. You know, we're just ordinary people, most of us, just living ordinary lives, trying to bring your faith to work, like Cam was talking about, trying to be faithful, trying to love our families, trying to live out our faith as best we can amidst the demands of of ordinary, normal life. And you can look at the great examples and you think, well, if that's what it means to build the kingdom of God and participate in this great movement, I'm kind of getting left behind. I'm not really making it. I'm not really useful to God. I'm just doing this thing over here. But this is where we've got to come back to these stories. And remember, this is not a story about any one person. Jesus is not telling stories about great individual feats 
and great extraordinary people that did far-reaching things with huge impact. He's telling a story about the composite effect of the kingdom of heaven as it rolls forward through history. The composite effect of billions and billions of people down through millennia who name the name of Jesus and in the power of the Spirit seek in all kinds of ways, big and small, to do what they can to participate in this thing called the kingdom of heaven. It's the whole picture Jesus is building. He's not putting the spotlight on particular individuals that we would consider to be great people. We should learn from them, yes. But this is about the whole picture, the whole deal, every single one of us. It's true. Sometimes God is going to put his finger on a particular life. You see this in Scripture plenty of times. You know the examples. God will put his finger on someone's life and he'll raise that person up and they will do something extraordinary in God's power. But so much of the time, this mustard seed becoming the mustard tree, this yeast becoming worked through the dough happens through ordinary people. It happens through ordinary Christians doing ordinary things in the course of their ordinary life, but doing them in Jesus' name and seeking in ordinary conversations, everyday interactions to show faith and hope and love to people around them. That's how the kingdom comes. One of my favorite writers is a guy named Henry Nouwen. He was a Catholic priest and a theologian, professor, academic lived in the latter part of the 20th century, and uh, he was a brilliant mind. He had an amazing career and worked in some very prestigious uh, universities in North America, worked in Notre Dame, worked at uh, Yale Divinity School, Harvard, and uh, had an incredibly successful career by any standard. But in 1985, he left Harvard, where he was teaching, and he moved to France, and he went and moved into and lived in this little community called Liarc Daybreak. It was a community for disabled people. And Henry Nouwen wasn't disabled, but he moved into this community and he lived among them, this small community of people, and he became their pastor. And he lived out the last 10 years of his life as part of this community. In some ways, it almost seems like the opposite of the mustard seed, mustard tree thing. Seems like it's going backwards. I mean, he had such influence, he had such prestige, he had such ability to, to impact the world, and yet he gave that up. He went into this small thing, this thing that was, was just not credible to so many of his peers. And yet this is one of the ways that the kingdom of God comes on earth. This was such a precious thing in God's sight. His involvement in that community was something that God did use to touch the lives, not only of those people, but of millions more. Because interestingly, of all the stuff Henry Nouwen wrote, it's the books he wrote during that period of his life that are the most profound, that I've found the most enriching, when he really discovered what it means to be the beloved of God. And he really discovered and wrote about what it means for these people around him, these broken people, to be the beloved of God. Those are the books that have been most influential, funnily enough. God uses all kinds of people doing all kinds of different things to build his kingdom. Closer to home, you think of Joe and Lydia and our church going out every Friday night to Queen Street, uh, trying to serve the poor trying to serve the homeless on the streets of the CBD, trying to buy a meal for people that need that, more recently trying to uh, get these backpacks that many of you have filled up and uh, taking them into the city and just trying to do what they can to bless people and serve people that are living on the streets. And I was talking to Joe the other week, and he was saying there's kind of a sense that like what they're doing is awesome, but it's such a drop in the bucket compared to the need that is there, compared to the size of the problem that is huge and getting bigger. 
And yet as we talked, we said, you know, in the end, it really is about being faithful to what God's called you to do and not allowing the fact that it is an overwhelming problem to prevent you from doing something in a small little corner of Queen Street, as it might be, but to do something. And that is the kingdom of heaven. And yes, we want to work with others, and who knows, it might take on greater size and shape and impact and and bring resources around that, and we desire that. This is not about being fatalistic, but it's saying let's be faithful to what God is doing. Let's be faithful. And it might look like a mustard seed. It might look like a little pinch of yeast, but it's incredibly precious in God's eyes, and it's becoming another branch of this great big mustard tree that God is growing globally, historically, that Jesus calls the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is coming to Queen Street every Friday night because of Joe and Lydia. That's what the kingdom of heaven looks like when it comes to earth. Kingdom of heaven looked like yesterday, a bunch of guys from the church turning up to the home of a woman in our church who was widowed several years ago, and she needed some work done on her property. So a bunch of guys turn up, spend the afternoon getting stuck in and sorting out her section. It's amazing, actually. You know these guys, you see them around Jim Davis here, and they just look like ordinary guys. And then you put a chainsaw in their hand, and it's like transformation. These guys, Jim suddenly becomes a powerhouse, you know? He's a beast with a chainsaw. And it was wonderful just to be able to serve and bless and just be involved in that. Wonderful for the guys to be able to do that. Wonderful for the person who was served and blessed by that. Just a humble example. Every day, ordinary, largely unnoticed maybe. But the kingdom of heaven came to that home yesterday. The kingdom of heaven arrived in that backyard because of a bunch of guys that were willing to just get stuck in, roll up their sleeves, give time, give effort, and serve. It's the kingdom of heaven. There's an interesting little word in these parables. In the parable of the yeast. When the woman takes the yeast and it says she mixed it into the flour, literally the word Jesus uses there is she hid it in the flour. It's the word for to hide something. And it's that idea that so often the way we express the kingdom is the hidden things. It is the small things. You know, Mother Teresa said we cannot do great things, only small things with great love. And we would look at her and we'd say, well, she did some amazing things. But she didn't consider herself to be doing great things. She considered herself to be doing small things and just serving and loving and showing compassion to the individuals that were in front of her in the given moment. It's these hidden things. It's the humble things. It's the everyday things. It's the unseen things. There's a couple in our church that set up an anonymous bank account so that they can just give money generously to people that are in need and the people have no idea it's them. They did it specifically so that it's a hidden thing. That's how the kingdom of heaven comes. It's prayer. Completely hidden thing if you're just praying by yourself. But prayer is one of the most vital ways in which the kingdom of heaven comes about on earth. As you're holding up someone else who is in need and you're holding them before the Father and asking him to bathe them in his love and grace and give them what they need in that moment. Prayer is a vital way in which we build the kingdom of heaven. Our personal presence with someone else is a way of building the kingdom of heaven. Just being with someone, someone who's lonely, someone who doesn't have friends and is isolated, giving them an opportunity to experience friendship, experience community, just being with that person. That's how the kingdom of heaven comes. It comes in big and dramatic ways, yes, but it comes in all kinds of ordinary ways as well. And ultimately, what Jesus is pointing us towards in this parable is the final kingdom. 
when he describes the mustard tree, you know, I mean, this is like the end result of the kingdom, what the kingdom will look like in its fullness when it's, when it's finalized. When he describes the, the, the loaves of bread or, or the dough that has been permeated completely by the yeast, this is a picture of the final kingdom. And much as we can look at two millennia of the kingdom moving forward and taking shape, ultimately the kingdom is not going to be finalized until Jesus returns. That's when he will usher in the kingdom of God on earth. It's not going to be that you and I just kind of put building block upon building block upon building block, and then one day the kingdom's just going to arrive. One day someone will do the last little thing, and bang, the kingdom will be here. It doesn't work like that. The kingdom of God will only come in its fullness when Jesus returns. And much as we can see the incredible impact of the kingdom in the present, it's only a whisper of what's yet to come. It's only a little glimpse. All we see in the present Powerful as these things are, are tastes and glimpses and shadows and whispers of what the final kingdom is going to look like when Jesus returns and he brings it about in all of its glory, all of its fullness, when the shalom of God, the peace of God covers the entirety of the earth and evil is vanquished and God's reign is established in its fullness. That's where Jesus is ultimately pointing us, right? That's the final kingdom. And it, it is God who is going to bring that kingdom about. It's God who brings the present kingdom about as well. Don't get that misunderstood. But it's Jesus in his returning who is going to establish the final kingdom. And even though only Christ will bring his kingdom to earth, this kingdom that he's building now, it is the real kingdom. I get frustrated when, kingdom, when, when Christians talk about this life just being a dress rehearsal for eternity or this life kind of just being a practice run. It's not a practice run. This is the real performance right now. This is the same kingdom. It's not that in the end, Jesus is going to come, wipe everything away and say, that was a good practice. Now let's get the real thing going. No, there's going to be a continuity. Jesus will come not to replace the existing kingdom, but to fulfill it, to bring it to its culmination on earth. But it will draw into itself all that the kingdom has been and continues to be in the present life. And that means the things that we do now to express the kingdom of heaven will find their way into God's new creation. It means even the small little things now, the little mustard seed things that we do now, the little bit pinches of yeast here and there that we do in this life, they will find a home in the future kingdom of heaven. They are not in vain. I love the way Tom Wright puts this. In his book, Surprised by Hope, he says, What you do in the Lord is not in vain. You are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You are not restoring a great painting that's shortly to be thrown in the fire. You are, strange though it may seem, accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Every deed that spreads the gospel builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world. All of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. The stuff we do in this life is not meaningless. It's not a practice run. This is the kingdom of God. It's taking shape. It's a little piece of that final kingdom. And you've got the assurance that nothing you do for God in this life is wasted. It's not in vain, but it's going to find a home in that future new creation. So let's be kingdom people. Let's be about the work of the kingdom. And let's remember, as we take communion this morning, as we're going to share in this bread, we're going to break this bread, and we are going to remember 
that the kingdom of heaven only comes about because Christ died for us. We're going to remember that the most extraordinary act of the kingdom of heaven ever was the death of Jesus. So much the opposite of what we might be expecting as a grand gesture of building God's great kingdom. A man crucified, bleeding, suffering, dying, tortured on a cross. And yet that was how the kingdom came. That's how the kingdom was established. And then that same man rose from the dead three days later. So we are celebrating that this is not our kingdom that we're building. It's not a great edifice to ourselves and our glory. It's not so we can pat ourselves on the back and say how good we are. It is ultimately, we serve Christ because of what he has already done for us. We serve Christ because he is building his kingdom and he has given his life for the kingdom of heaven. So we're going to break this bread and we are going to remember that the kingdom is here because the body of Jesus was broken, because the blood of Jesus was spilled. And that's how the kingdom came. And the kingdom of God continues to come into the world today in all kinds of humble ways, subversive ways, sometimes surprising ways, unexpected ways. Some of them are great, dramatic, and far-reaching, but many of them, most of them, are very, very ordinary. But let's ask the Lord, how is he calling us to express the kingdom of heaven? Who is in our lives that we can extend faith and hope and love to for Jesus' sake? What are the ways in which he's calling us to participate in his kingdom, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our social communities, professional communities, and so on? How is the kingdom already coming about? And how can we join in with what God is already doing? Let's pray, and then we're going to share communion. Jesus, we, we just want to step back and marvel at this incredible thing called the kingdom of heaven. It began as small as a mustard seed. It began like a little pinch of yeast. But Jesus, you knew that this movement, this new reality, would have such influence, such effect in this world. And we thank you for all that has been done by your power, in your spirit, through your people over thousands of years to express the kingdom in so many ways. We thank you for the way that the world has already been changed by you, Jesus. And God, now as we look at our lives, we look at our place in history, we look at our part of the story, we want to pray, Jesus, that even in this moment, you would bring to our minds and hearts now the ways in which you might be calling us to be part of the story. The ways in which you are calling us to be kingdom people, to allow your kingdom to take root in our lives and our hearts the way you're, you're bringing your kingdom about in our church and the ways in which you're bringing your kingdom about through us out into the world. Lord, give us a love for your kingdom. Give us a heart that more and more people would be drawn into your kingdom and touched by your kingdom and give us, fill us with hope for the future coming of your kingdom when the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our God and you reign and you rule over all things. We thank you, Jesus, that it is only by your power and by your shed blood on the cross that any of this is possible. So make us your kingdom, people, we pray. For Christ's sake, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit 
www.shore.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shore.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.